You are listening to Jewish History from the Inside Out, an analysis of Chazal in the context of conventional history. This Hanukkah series is dedicated in loving memory of Schneer Zalman Olav HaSholem and Harav Menachem Mendel Sheyichia. May his memory be a blessing. Welcome to Episode 3 of Jewish History from the Inside Out, the Hanukkah series. In this episode, we present two accounts of the Hanukkah story from the vantage point of Chazal, our sages of blessed memory. And we come face to face with two of the unsung heroes of the Hanukkah story. The first account is contained in a work known commonly as Megillus Antiochus, the scroll of Antiochus, referenced in episode one. The second is contained in various forms in a number of Midrashic traditions. Important note. This episode is organized differently from the previous two. You see, the Hanukkah accounts of Chazal presented here only barely resemble the narrative described in last episode. The discrepancies are vast and manifold and necessitate comprehensive and detailed analysis. We've done our best to try and keep our discussion concise and to stay out of the weeds. Still, the listener will need to exert greater focus than was required for the previous episodes. We'll begin with the scroll of Antiochus. I will first present an overview of the story contained therein before diving into the text. This will help the listener to remain on track and not lose trail of the events. We will then proceed through the actual scroll, which I have divided into seven sections, pausing at the end of each section for some discussion and analysis. We will then summarize the scroll and move on to the Midrashic account. Afterwards, we'll compare the two accounts and resolve any discrepancies. At the end of the episode, we will end up with a Hanukkah story that hardly compares to the version presented in episode 2. But don't worry, this is merely a setup. In episode 4, we will resolve the contradictory accounts and emerge with a fascinating new understanding and appreciation of the Hanukkah story. And now, a brief overview of the story of Hanukkah as described in the scroll of Antiochus. There was a king Antiochus who had an underling named Bagris. This king decreed that the Jews forsake their traditions, especially the mitzvahs of Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, which refers loosely to the Jewish calendar, i.e. the festivals, and bris milah, circumcision. In order to enforce his decrees, he sent his deputy Nicanor to Jerusalem. The temple was desecrated and the evil decrees enforced. Finally, one son of Matisyahu had had enough and came up with a plan to kill Nicanor. The plan was a success. Nicanor was killed and his entire army destroyed. When he heard the news that Nicanor had been killed, the king sent Bagris to enforce his evil decrees. Bagris ruthlessly implemented Antiochus' program, and many Jews were slaughtered, sacrificing their lives to sanctify Hashem's name. Eventually, the five sons of Matisyahu expelled Bagris from the land, 
but he soon returned with an even greater army and wrecked utter havoc in Jerusalem and the Holy Temple. A great battle was fought, in which Yehuda and Elazar, two of the Maccabee brothers, were killed. Finally, after Matisyahu joined his sons together in battle, the enemy was overcome, Bagris was killed, and the Holy Temple was cleansed and restored. Only one single cruise of pure olive oil was found with which to light the menorah, but a miracle occurred and the lights burned for eight days. To commemorate the miracle, the sages instituted the holiday of Hanukkah. This concludes the overview of the scroll of Antiochus. Before delving into the actual text, however, a brief note about the language and style of Chazal is in order. To the uninitiated, the literature of Chazal may sometimes sound fantastic and the pace disorienting. Events seem to occur with lightning speed in quick succession and context is often missing. Chazal were very focused in their writing and in the details they chose to record. They concentrated only on aspects of the story they considered absolutely necessary and left out many other details deemed unimportant. It is not always clear why certain details were included while others were omitted. Part of our work, then, will be to try and analyze why Chazal incorporated certain incidents while others were excluded from the record. It is also important to recognize the idiomatic use of certain terms employed by Chazal that must not be translated literally. These will be pointed out in due course. Also, Chazal did not necessarily record events in chronological order, unless explicitly so stated. Instead, they might choose to present events thematically, grouping similar incidents together for the sake of brevity or so that no individual event is lost to history. Now, over the millennia, Myriad variations have crept into the text. The Aramaic version we will be following is the Yemenite one that best corresponds to the Arabic translation of Ripsad Yagoin. We will compare and contrast with other versions of the scroll when appropriate. And now, the scroll of Antiochus. Section 1, Prelude. And so it was in the days of the great and powerful Antiochus, king of Greece, a firm ruler who was obeyed by all kings. He conquered many lands and arrested mighty kings. He laid waste to their castles and set fire to their palaces and imprisoned their men. He built a great city on the coast of the sea that served as his capital and called it Antioch after his name. His deputy, Bagris, likewise built another city facing it and called it Bagris after his name. And so they are called to this day. In the 23rd year of his reign, the 213th year that the Holy Temple stood, he set his sights upon Jerusalem. He gathered his officers and said to them, You surely know of the Jewish nation of Judea that dwells in our midst. They do not sacrifice to our gods, they do not follow our customs, 
they neglect the king's laws in favor of their own, and they yearn for the day when all kings and rulers will be destroyed. They say, when will our king reign over us, and we will rule the earth and the sea, and the entire world will be delivered into our hands? It is an affront to the monarchy to suffer them on the face of the earth. Now then, let us go up against them and abolish the covenant their God has struck with them, the Sabbath, the festivals, and circumcision. The officers and the entire army agreed. So here we have a great and powerful Greek, that is, Hellenistic king, who conquers many countries and kings and destroys their lands. The scroll is not explicit about which king we are referring to, but it does offer two clues. One, he built a great city, calling it Antioch. And two, in the 23rd year of his reign. Now, the city of Antioch, capital of the Seleucid Empire, was actually built by the founder of the empire, Seleucus, and was named either for his father or his son, both of whom were called Antiochus. Clearly, the phrase he built must be understood as he rebuilt or expanded the city of Antioch, which bore his name. We find the term used in this context in the Torah as well. And Antiochus Epiphanes did indeed expand the city of Antioch by a full quarter of its size. The 23rd year of his reign is clearly referring to the 23rd year of collective Seleucid rule over the land of Israel. Antiochus III's second and decisive conquest of Israel occurred in the year 198 BCE, and Antiochus IV ascended the throne in 175, 23 years later. Shortly after his ascent to the throne, he issued decrees against Shabbos, the festivals, and circumcision. The other date provided here, the 213th year of the temple, is quite problematic, as that would place the events in the year 140 BCE, during the reign of Antiochus IV's great-nephew, Demetrius II. This will be resolved in episode 4. The city of Bagris, however, remains elusive. I have found no ancient city by this name, certainly not in the vicinity of Antioch. However, exactly 60 miles due east of Antioch lies the city of Aleppo, which in ancient times was called Beroya. It was named after a Macedonian city by the same name, which was supposedly founded by a king, Beris. Is Beris identical with Bagris? Does facing Antioch mean along the same latitudinal line? Possibly. The city of Aleppo was called Beroya all through the Greek and Roman periods when the scroll was written. Additionally, the 19th century geographer, Rabbi Yosef Schwartz, in his Sefer Pre Tavua, writes the following quote, On the road from Aleppo to Antioch lies an abandoned fortress the locals call Bagris. One way or another, the city of Bagris was probably located in the general area of Aleppo. 
Now, it is quite probable that Bagris is either a corruption or a Hebraized version of the name Bacchides. The letters Gimel and Kuf are both articulated by the palate, and as such are interchangeable. They can also appear quite similar in some scripts. The letters Resh and Dalid, obviously so as well. We did mention Abacades in last episode, but he was mentioned only in passing as a possible accomplice to Timotheus in his war against the Jews, hardly the high-ranking deputy of King Antiochus. And now, back to the scroll. Section 2, The Campaign of Nicanor So King Antiochus arose and sent his deputy Nicanor with a big army and a large multitude to Jerusalem. He massacred a great many, and he placed an idol, or according to most versions, he erected an altar in the Holy Temple, in the place where God had declared through his prophets, There my presence shall ever dwell. In that very place they slaughtered a pig and brought its blood into the holy sanctuary. When the high priest, Yochanan the son of Matisyohu, heard what was happening, he was filled with wrath and rage. His face turned colors, and he contemplated what to do about it. So Yochanan, son of Matisyohu, made himself a sword, the size of one cubit by half a cubit, and hid it under his garment. He came to Jerusalem and stood at the gate of the city and called out to the gatekeepers and watchmen, I, Yochanan, son of Matisyahu, high priest of the Jews, have come to present to Nicanor. The watchmen and gatekeepers came and told Nicanor, the high priest of the Jews is standing at the gate. Let him enter, said Nicanor. Yochanan was brought before Nicanor, who addressed him. You are a rebel who has rebelled against the king and does not seek the welfare of his kingdom. Yochanan replied, Now I have come before you to do your bidding. If you wish to do my bidding, said Nicanor to Yochanan, take a swine and slaughter it before the idol. Then I will clothe you in royal attire and you will ride on the king's horse and you will be counted as an ally of the king. When Yochanan heard these words, he said, My master, I am afraid lest the Jews discover what I have done, and they will stone me. I request that all men leave your presence, lest the word get out. So Nicanor made all the men leave his presence. At that moment, Yochanan raised his eyes to heaven and offered a prayer to the master of the world. He said, My God, God of my forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not let me fall into the hands of this pagan, for if he kills me, he will go and offer praise in the temple of his deity and proclaim, My deity has delivered him into my hands. Then Yochanan took three steps towards Nicanor and put the sword through his heart, and he cast his corpse upon the holy sanctuary. Yochanan called out to God in heaven and said, O God, do not consider it a sin that I killed him in your holy temple. Now I beseech you to deliver into our hands the entire multitude that has come to Jerusalem to persecute the Jews. 
So Yochanan went out on that day and fought against the nations and slew many of them. The dead slain on that day numbered 72,700, for they killed each other. Upon his return, he erected a monument and named that place the Valley Where the Mighty Were Slaughtered. We have encountered a Nicanor in Episode 2. He was the general who led the third campaign against the Maccabees and was defeated at Emmaus. However, that war ended with Nicanor's defeat, not his death. According to Maccabees II, he escaped back to Antioch, as mentioned in last episode. Nicanor of the Scroll and Nicanor of Maccabees are clearly not one and the same. We also learn in this section that Yochanan, son of Matis Yahu, was the Koyin Gadol, the high priest. Although throughout the Second Temple there were many high priests named Yochanan, there is no mention in either Book of Maccabees nor in Josephus of Yochanan ben Matis Yahu ever having served as Kohen Gadol. Nevertheless, it is clear, beyond the shadow of a doubt, from the writings of Chazal, that he most certainly did serve in that capacity. In Megillus Tainus, in the section on the third of Tishrei, it states unequivocally, When the house of Chashmanoi, that is, the Maccabees, were victorious, they instituted that the dates in all legal documents be recorded as in such and such year of Yochanan Koyin Godel, high priest of the supernal God. The only Yochanan Koyin Godel who fits the bill, the only Yochanan who matches the timeline of Megillus Tainus, is Yochanan, the son of Matis Yahu. Now the war against Nicanor is mentioned in other rabbinic sources as well, including Megillus Tainus, which reads as follows. Nicanor was a Greek general who was on his way to Alexandria. Every day he would wave his arm toward Jerusalem and the Holy Temple and hurl curses and insults. He would say, When I return in peace, I will destroy this structure. The royal house of Chashmanoi descended upon his ranks and began killing them until they reached his leading officers. They cut off their heads and their thumbs and big toes, and they cut off his head and his limbs and hung them facing the holy temple. They said, This is the hand that waved and the mouth that spoke in arrogance against the holy temple. Although Megillus Tainus does not say that Yochanan killed Nicanor, it does not directly contradict the scroll either. Nicanor's death could conceivably have occurred prior to the battle at the hands of Yochanan the high priest. Now in Maccabees 1, Yochanan is known by the alias Gadi, which I believe means the one who cuts down, or the slayer. Alternatively, the alias Gadi may possibly mean one of the tribe of God, a tribe who was known to sever its enemies' heads along with their arms, similar to what was done to Nicanor. Either way, I contend he acquired this name by dint of the heroic act described above. And now, Section 3, the first campaign of Bagrus. When King Antiochus heard that his deputy Nicanor 
had been killed, he was greatly distressed, and he sent for the evil Bagris, who led his people astray. Antiochus said to Bagris, You surely know, for you must have heard, what the Jews have done to me. They slew my army and plundered my legions and my officers. Now, are you secure with your possessions or the houses that you own? Let us go up against them and abolish the covenant their God has struck with them, the Sabbath, the festivals, and circumcision. So the evil Bagris and all of his legions arose and came to Jerusalem. They massacred many people and decreed total annihilation upon anyone who would keep the Sabbath, the festivals, and circumcision. Now as the king's decree was being carried out with zeal, anyone, man or woman, who circumcised their child would be brought forth and would be hanged facing the child. There was a woman who had borne a son after the death of her husband and had circumcised him at eight days. She went up to the city walls carrying her newly circumcised infant in her hands and cried out, Evil Bagris, we hereby declare that the covenant of our ancestors shall never be broken, and that the Sabbath, the holidays, and circumcision will not cease from our people for all posterity. Then she cast her son from the wall to the ground and threw herself down after him, and they died together. In those days many Jews chose such fates rather than betray the covenant of their ancestors. At that time, there were Jews who said to one another, Let us go hide in the cave and keep the Sabbath there, lest we be forced to desecrate it. But they were slandered to Bagris. So the evil Bagris sent armed men who arrived at the mouth of the cave and said to them, Jews, come out to us, eat our bread, drink our wine, and follow our laws. The Jews conferred among themselves. No. We will heed the law that we were commanded on Mount Sinai. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Let us die in this cave, rather than desecrate the Sabbath. When they had thus refused to acquiesce, the soldiers brought wet branches and burned them at the mouth of the cave. About a thousand men and women were thus killed. Afterwards, the five sons of Matisyahu, Yochanan, and his four brothers went out and fought these Gentiles. They placed their trust in the God of heaven and slew many of them, while the rest fled overseas. Okay, so, Bagris, who led his people astray. That is clearly a euphemism, which means that he led the Jews astray. Such euphemisms are common throughout the works of Chazal. So not only did Bagris persecute the Jews, he also led them astray, whatever that means. It is interesting to note that Antiochus does not garner such a title, and that throughout the story, Bagris appears the greater villain. Scenes of parents who circumcised their children, who were hanged along with their infants, are described in the books of Maccabees as well as is the incident in which a thousand Jews were choked to death for refusing to desecrate the Shabbos, with some variation. In Maccabees 2, it is Philip 
who orders them put to death. The end of the section is quite interesting, as the scroll refers to the five sons of Matisyahu, Yochanan, and his four brothers. Why is Yochanan singled out and not Yehuda, who is the eldest and commander-in-chief? The most probable explanation is that this is consistent with the earlier designation of Yochanan as Kohen Gadol. The phrase, they fled overseas, is employed many times in the scroll. It simply means they retreated to Antioch. We now continue with Section 4, the Second Campaign of Bagris. So the evil Bagris and some others who had escaped the carnage boarded a ship and fled to Antiochus. Said Bagris to King Antiochus, Your Majesty, you've commanded the Jews to cease their practice of the Sabbath, the festivals, and circumcision. But the land is full of treachery, and the people have revolted. Should all nations, peoples, and tongues come together, they could not vanquish the five sons of Matisyahu, who are mightier than lions, swifter than eagles, and more brazen than beers. Now then, your majesty, I implore you, do not do battle with them with such few legions, lest you be disgraced before all kings. Instead, dispatch letters to all of the countries under your reign, let their officers come forth, and not one remain behind. Let them also bring armored elephants along with them. King Antiochus took this advice, and he sent for the officers of each country. And the entire multitude came, accompanied by armored elephants. The evil Bagris arose for the second time and arrived in Jerusalem. He smashed the city walls, removed the gates, made thirteen breaches in the temple wall and crushed the stones to dust. And he thought to himself, This time I will not be bested by the Jews, for my army is great and my arm is mighty. But God in heaven thought otherwise. As mentioned earlier, there's no record in secular sources of any war with Bagris, let alone two, prior to the restoration of the temple except for a single mention in Maccabees 2, where Abacades is listed as a possible accomplice to Timotheus. Regarding Bagris's evil deeds and the breaching of the wall of the temple, the Mishnah in Tractate Midois records that the Greeks made 13 breaches in the Soireg wall, which enclosed an area of the temple mount known as the Chel, an area where it was forbidden for Gentiles to enter. Commentaries explain that the breaches were done specifically in the Seirig wall to symbolize the removal of the barrier between Jew and non-Jew, and so to encourage assimilation. And now, Section 5, the Maccabees do battle. When the five sons of Matisyahu heard this, they arose and went to Mitzpegilod a place where they had experienced salvation in the days of the prophet Shmuel. They declared a great fast day, and they sat upon the ashes, beseeching God in heaven for his mercy. And a good plan formed in their minds. They, whose names were Yehuda, the firstborn, Shimon, the second brother, Yochanan, the third, Yoinasan, the fourth, and Elazar, the fifth. 
Their father blessed them before sending them off into battle. He said, Yehuda, my son, you are like Yehuda, the son of Yaakov, who was compared to a lion. Shimon, my son, you are like Shimon, the son of Yaakov, who killed the inhabitants of Shechem. Yochanan, my son, you are like Avner, the son of Ner, commander-in-chief of the Jewish army. Yoinasan, my son, you are like Yoinasan, the son of Shaul, who killed the Philistines. Elazar, my son, you are like Pinchas, the son of Elazar, who was zealous for God and saved the Jewish nation from his wrath. Then the five sons of Matasyahu arose and went to war against the Gentiles. They slew many of them, but Yehuda was killed in battle. When they saw that Yehuda had been killed, they retreated and returned to their father. Why have you returned? he asked. Our brother Yehuda, who was equal to all of us, has been killed, they said. To which their father replied, This time I will go with you into battle, lest the Jewish nation be destroyed, for you have become frightened at the death of your brother. Matis Yehu went out with his sons on that day, and they battled the Gentiles. God in heaven delivered all of the nations into their hands, and they killed many of them. Of all the swordsmen, archers, officers, and lieutenants, not one escaped, and the rest of the army fled overseas. While Elazar was engaged in killing the elephants, he sunk in the excrement of the elephants. When the brothers returned, they searched for him among the living and the dead, but could not find him. Eventually, he was discovered, submerged in the excrement of the elephants. Now, although we do find in the first book of Maccabees that the brothers and their army encamped at Mitzpah and fasted and prayed there and so on before the battle of Emmaus, this was more than a year after Matisyahu had passed away. The sudden appearance of Matisyahu during the final war is one of the biggest conundrums of the scroll and presents a seemingly irreconcilable difference between it and the conventional history. In truth, the entire description of events makes little sense. There has been no mention of Matisyahu up until this point. If Matisyahu was alive, why wasn't he the high priest rather than his son Yochanan? Also, why specifically here did Matisyahu bless his children before they went to war? After all, this wasn't their first rodeo. And if Matisyahu was such an accomplished warrior, even at his advanced age, why did he not accompany them into battle the first time around? Here are my thoughts. The second book of Maccabees records a number of visions that appeared to Yehuda HaMaccabee and his army before various battles. Aside from the one mentioned in last episode of a horse rider in white with golden armor that appeared before the battle of Beis Tzur, there is another vision of Yochanan Koyin Godel with Yirmiyahu Hanavi, the prophet Jeremiah, and another in which five horsemen appear in middle of one of the battles and take Yehuda under their wing and fire away at the enemy. It is my contention that the brothers here beheld a vision of their father blessing them 
before they were to enter this fateful and decisive battle. When Yehudu was killed, they retreated, and their father again appeared to them, and this time led them into war against Bagris, in much the same way as those five horsemen mentioned above protected and assisted Yehuda in an earlier battle. Perhaps the most surprising element of the story contained in the scroll is that two of the brothers, Yehuda and Elazar, are killed before victory is attained. Only three of the five Maccabee brothers are at hand when the temple is cleansed and the menorah is kindled. This is the kind of stuff that can make your head spin. But don't worry, it'll all be resolved in the next episode. And finally, Section 6, Victory. The Jews rejoiced that their enemies had been delivered into their hands. Some they burned, some they pierced with the sword, and some were hanged on the trees. The evil Bagris, who led his people astray, was set aflame by the house of Israel. When King Antiochus heard that his deputy Bagris, along with all of his officers, had been killed, he boarded a ship and fled overseas. Everywhere he went, the people rebelled against him and would taunt him, shouting, Fugitive! Fugitive! And he threw himself into the sea. Now the last sentence, and he threw himself into the sea, does not appear in most versions of the scroll, although it does appear in Ripsadius' script. Of course, this clearly contradicts the account presented in the last episode, where Antiochus dies from an illness and wounds sustained on his way back from Persia. And now, Section 7. Repairing the Holy Temple, Kindling the Menorah, and Establishing the Holiday of Hanukkah. Afterwards, the Jews entered the Holy Temple, repaired its breaches, and purged the Holy Temple of the corpses and profanities. They searched for pure olive oil with which to kindle the lights, but could find only a single flask that was sealed with the signet ring of the high priest from the days of the prophet Shmuel, and that they could be assured was pure. It contained enough to light for but a single day, but God in heaven whose name rested upon that place, infused it with blessing, and they used it to kindle for eight days. Therefore, the sons of Hashmanoi, along with the entire Jewish people, instituted and ordained to celebrate these eight days just like the holidays contained in the Torah, and to kindle the lights to make known to all generations that follow that God had brought them salvation from heaven. It is forbidden to eulogize or to declare a fast on any of these days. Also, anyone who pledged a sacrifice to the temple must discharge his obligation at that time. Chashmanoi and his sons and brothers did not, however, forbid active work and labor on these days. From that time onward, the Greeks lost their dominion, and the sons of Chashmanoi and their posterity obtained kingship. From this time until the destruction of the temple, there was a period of 206 years. Therefore, the Jews keep these days all throughout their diaspora, and they are called Days of Joy, beginning on the 25th day of the month of Kislev. This holiday will never leave them, for the priests 
the Levites, and all the sages in the Holy Temple ordained it and took it upon themselves and their descendants for all time. The End If you've been paying close attention, you may have noticed this is the second time the prophet Shmuel appears in the scroll. According to Kabbalah, Shmuel is associated with the divine attribute of Netzach, perseverance, while Matis Yahu is associated with Hoid, submission. These divine attributes operate in tandem, and so it is fitting that the prophet Shmuel be mentioned in the scroll alongside Matis Yahu. For more information on the divine attributes of Netzach and Hoid and their interaction, see the link posted below in the show notes. Here, of course, we encounter the miracle of the oil, celebrated by Jews the world over for millennia. We will reserve discussion of this miracle for another episode. The name Chashmanoi suddenly appears out of nowhere, and without any introduction, as if it is assumed we know who it is referring to. Now, in Chazal, the term House of Chashmanoi is used to refer to the royal family descendant from Matisyahu. Interestingly, the name does not appear at all in either book of Maccabees. The meaning of the name or title Chashmanoi is somewhat obscure. According to Josephus, Chashmanoi was an early ancestor of Matisyahu's. In his Rishimois, his private notes, number 125, the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes as follows, Chashmanoi Shem Prati. Chashmanoi refers to an individual. Ulehoir Miloshin Ye'esoyu Chashmanim. The Rebbe makes note of Psalm 58, where Chashmanim is employed as a title. Thus, Chashmanoi was either an ancestor of Matisyohu, or it is a title, meaning Great One that was adopted by him and his descendants. We will have more to say about this at the end of the episode. The timeline presented here, 206 years until the destruction of the temple, is consistent with Chazal in Seder Oilam Rabo, where it states that the house of Chashmenoi ruled for 103 years during the Second Temple Era, followed by the house of Herod for another 103 years until the destruction of the temple. Twice 103 is 206 years from when the Hashmenoim assumed the throne until the temple was destroyed by the Romans. The problem with this chronology, however, as stated earlier, is that it places the story during the reign of Demetrius II, great-nephew of Antiochus. Let us now summarize the story of Hanukkah according to the scroll of Antiochus. First, Antiochus issues decrees against Shabbos, the festivals, and circumcision. Then, he sends his general Nicanor, who is killed by Yochanan the high priest, and his army is destroyed. Antiochus sends Bagris to enforce his decrees, and many people give up their lives to keep the Torah and its laws. Yehuda and his men eject Bagris, who returns with an even greater army. Matis Yohu blesses his children who go out to war, but Yehuda, then Elazar, are killed. 
Matisyahu then joins his children on the battlefield, and the Jews win a decisive victory. They restore the temple and kindle the menorah, which burns for eight days. This concludes our discussion of the scroll of Antiochus, though we are left with more questions than answers. Who are Nicanor and Bagris? And why is there no mention of them in Maccabees or Josephus? Why don't we find Yochanan Koyin Godel mentioned in a single external source? How to reconcile the death of Yehuda and Elazar with the secular account? And finally, why is the miracle of the oil not mentioned at all outside of Chazal? All of these and much more will be resolved in episode 4. We now move on to the account presented in Medrash Hanukkah. Medrash Hanukkah is a general designation for a collection of small excerpts containing a version of the Hanukkah story. The story, transmitted through the generations, has survived in multiple versions, and it is therefore very difficult to pin down the correct version. Because it is a standalone medrash and not part of a larger work, many discrepancies have crept into the text. I will try and present here a coherent version compiled from among all of the various editions and texts. Medrash Hanukkah In the era of the evil Greek empire, it was decreed that any Jew who owned a drawbar should engrave upon it that he has no portion in the God of Israel. So the Jews went and removed the drawbars from their houses. It was further decreed that anyone who had an ox should ride on its horn that he has no portion in the God of Israel. So the Jews went and sold their oxen. Finally, it was decreed that any woman who married must first submit to the magistrate before she could be with her husband. This went on for three years and eight months until the marriage of the daughter of Yochanan the high priest. Let us pause here to note that these decrees are mentioned in Megillus Tainus as well, where it states, quote, On the 27th of Eor, the crowns were removed from Jerusalem. For the Greeks would make crowns of roses and hang them from the doors of their temples and stores and courtyards, and they would sing to their pagan gods. They would ride on the horns of an ox and on the forehead of a donkey, that its master had no portion in the supernal god. When the Hashmenoim overpowered them and got rid of these, they declared it a holiday. On the 27th of Elul, the haughty ones were removed from Jerusalem. For the Greeks harassed the Jews of Jerusalem, installing magistrates in the cities to violate the brides before they were to be married. When Matisyahu and his sons grew zealous, and prevailed over the Greeks and killed them, they declared this day a holiday. This cruel practice, imposed by different nationalities at various times throughout history, was known as Prima Nacta, the rite of the first night. And now, back to the Medrash. Yochanan the high priest had a daughter, Chana, who was exceedingly beautiful. According to some versions, she was the daughter of Matisyahu. And she was to be wed to Elazar, the son of Hashmenoi. 
The wedding could not be concealed because these were the greatest men of the generation and she was to submit to the magistrate. In the middle of the wedding feast, Hannah rose from under her canopy and tore her gown in front of the assembly, which included her father, brothers, and father-in-law. They were all very embarrassed and lowered their gazes and were filled with rage. So she cried out to them, Listen, my brothers, if you are so zealous that I stand here in this state, having committed no sin, why are you not zealous to deliver me, daughter of the high priest, to that uncircumcised one to be violated? Should you not learn from Shimon and Levi, brothers of Dino, who were only two people, and yet they killed the entire city of Shechem? And you are five brothers and two hundred priestly youths. Place your trust in Hashem, and He will surely help you. She began to cry and said, Master of the world, if you do not take pity on us, take pity on your holy name, for we are your people. At this point, the accounts diverge. According to the first account, which I believe is the more authentic one, what happens is as follows. When the magistrate arrived to claim her, the Jews looked towards the east, hoping that some Persian legions would come to their aid. Said Elozer to Yochanan, or according to other versions, it was the other way around, does it not say, cursed is he who trusts in man, and blessed is he who trusts in God? What then shall we do, said Yochanan? I'll tell you what Elozer replied. I and my seven sons, and you and your three sons, together we are twelve, like the twelve tribes of God. I am certain that Hashem will perform a miracle for us, for the sake of his great name. Elazar immediately drew his sword and decapitated the Greek, and proclaimed, My strength is from God, creator of heaven and earth. Now according to the second account, which is somewhat more questionable, what went on is as follows. Hannah's brothers grew zealous and said, Let us devise a plan. They conferred among themselves and came upon a good stratagem. Let's bring our sister to the king and say to him, Our sister is the daughter of the high priest, and it is fitting that she submit to you rather than to the magistrate. Then, we will enter and kill him first and then his officers. They built a canopy from the house of Hashmanoi all the way to the king's palace. When he saw the honor they had afforded him, he said, See how the Jews have honored me. They wish to submit to my laws. Let everyone leave my presence. They all left and the Jews entered and he treated them with great honor. Then Yehuda the woman's brother, arose and cut off the king's head. When the Greeks saw what had happened, they got up and fled, and the Jews killed mountains of them. The first version is quoted by Rashi in his commentary to Devarim 33.11. On the verse, Mechatz Mosnaim Kamov, cut down the loins of those who rise up against Levi, Rashi comments, Moshe saw that Hashmanoi and his children would battle the Greeks, and he prayed for them, since they were few, twelve sons of Hashmanoi and Elozer, 
against many tens of thousands. Most commentators assume that Chashmanoi is identical with Matis Yohu, and are thus confounded by Rashi's mention of twelve sons of Chashmanoi. After all, Matis Yohu had only five sons. They're equally confused as to why Elazar is mentioned separately, as he was one of Matis Yohu's five sons. What is clear, however, is that Rashi is following our Medrash, and that it is Yochanan who is referred to here as Chashmanoi. Accordingly, the phrase Twelve Sons of Chashmanoi and Elazar is to be understood as Chashmanoi and Elazar and their sons, which altogether total twelve. That the number of sons of so-and-so would include their father is a phenomenon that occurs in the Torah as well. See Eben Ezra to Genesis 46.23. Why would Chashmanoi be used to refer to Yochanan exclusively? My tentative suggestion is that whatever the actual meaning of the name, whether Great One or Descendant of Chashmanoi, and whether it refers to Matis Yohu or to his great-grandfather, the name first entered common use as a title for Yochanan, the son of Matis Yohu. We discovered earlier that Yochanan was Kohen Gadl. The reason he was called Chashmanoi then was to distinguish him from other earlier Yochanans who also served as high priest. As mentioned in the last episode, over the course of the Second Temple, there were multiple high priests named Yochanan. Indeed, the last high priest who fled to Antioch before the desecration of the Temple was also named Yochanan. To differentiate between them, Yochanan was called Chashmanoi, a name or title he inherited from his father. In a similar vein, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi in Doiris Harishoinim suggests that Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the Righteous, whose father's name was Yochanan, was called so posthumously to distinguish him from his grandson Shimon, whose father's name was also Yochanan, and who was less than righteous. Once Yochanan took the name Chashmanoi, it was retained by all of the descendants of Matis Yohu, who together became known as the House of Chashmanoi. Now, Yochanan Koyin Godel Chashmenoi had a daughter, Chana, who was to be wed to Elazar ben Chashmenoi. Elazar was either Yochanan's brother and was to marry his niece, a common Jewish practice, or, if Josephus is to be trusted, and Chashmenoi was indeed an early patriarch of the family, Elazar may have been a cousin of Chana's, descendant from another branch of the Chashmenoi family. That would further explain why Hanukkah is described as the victory of the house of Chashmenoi, since it would emerge that there was more than one branch of the family involved in the Hanukkah war. It is interesting that Elazar appears to have been middle-aged at that time, as he had already fathered seven sons, all of whom were old enough to enter into battle. Either way, Yehuda and his brothers were Hanukkah's uncles, and indeed, in one version of the Medrash, she addresses both her brothers and uncles. The fact that she is referred to as sister 
of Yehuda and daughter of Matisyahu in other versions, does not present much difficulty, as grandchildren are often referred to as children and family members as brothers and sisters. So in the end, it was both the Maccabee brothers as well as the twelve sons of Hashmanoi and Elozer who fought the Greek Empire. Still, these two accounts, that of the scroll of Antiochus mentioned earlier, and that of the Medrash, seem unrelated. Searching high and low for a way to resolve this issue, I finally came across an old Aramaic version of the scroll. In this version, lo and behold, were three full verses, all in Aramaic, that were absent from all other copies of the scroll. I subsequently came across another version in Yelenik's base Medrash, which contained these same verses with slight variations. The fact that they are written in Aramaic, with Trup, as well as the fact that they appear in more than one version, is to my mind conclusive evidence that this is not a later insertion, but rather an earlier omission from the popular version. I present the missing verses here in English. At the end of section 3, after a litany of decrees issued by Antiochus and the evil Bagris, and right before the verse describing how Yochanan and his four brothers fought the Greeks, there appear the following verses. Then the evil Bagris decreed upon the Jews that no maiden shall be with her husband except that she first submit to the king. Now Hashmanoi had a daughter, and it was thought that she would be brought before the evil Bagris. When she saw what they were about to do, she rent her garments and cried out to her father and brothers, Brothers, is this what you intend to do to me? To deliver me to a Gentile? Why are you not like your ancestors, who were zealous for the sake of their sister Dina? Surely the Creator of heaven and earth will come to your aid. Then the scroll continues with the verse, Afterwards the five sons of Matisyahu, Yochanan and his four brothers, went out and fought these Gentiles. Bingo! So the two accounts of Chazal do concur after all. The incident with Chana is what spurred the brothers to action and fueled the revolt. It is now even more clear why the five are referred to as Yochanan and his brothers, since Yochanan, father of the bride, was unquestionably the most personally involved in the incident which ultimately led to the revolt. Now, the reason Yochanan is referred to here as Chashmenoi, rather than as Yochanan, appears to me quite obvious. It is in order to conceal the humiliating fact that it was his daughter who was to be handed over to the evil Bagris. This is also perhaps the reason the account is entirely omitted from most versions of the scroll. This decree was so crushing, demoralizing, and humiliating that it was deleted from the general record, surviving only in Midrashic fragments. It is noteworthy to add that the Gemara also makes mention of this decree. See Shabbos 23a, where it states, quote, Women are obligated to light the Hanukkah candles, since they too were included in that miraculous salvation. And Rashi explains, quote, 
For the Greeks decreed that every maiden must first submit to the magistrate, and the miracle came about through a woman. Most commentaries, including Toysvis and Ramah, understand this last bit as a reference to Yehudis, the brave Jewish woman who decapitated Heliphornis. However, in light of our discussion, I believe it is entirely possible that Rashi is actually referring to Chana, the daughter of Yochanan Kohen Gadol, who inspired the rebellion. See also Mishnah Brura 675.10. Furthermore, I would venture that the phrase Chashmanoi Uvonov, Chashmanoi and his sons, actually refers to his daughter as well. Maybe even primarily to his daughter. In Hebrew, a group that comprises both males and females will use the masculine plural. Of course, the sensitive nature of the events would render it inappropriate for Hashmanoi's daughter to be mentioned explicitly. In this episode, we have been introduced to a father and a daughter, forgotten heroes of the Hanukkah story. Yoichanon Gadi, Yoichanon the Slayer, Koyin Godel and son of Matisyahu, and his daughter Hannah, who inspired the revolt that led to the Hanukkah miracle. Having reconciled the various sources in Chazal, we now turn to the seemingly impossible task of resolving the contradictory rabbinic and secular accounts of the Hanukkah story. Stay tuned for episode 4, where we tie it all together.